morning, uh, and I'm doing that for the purposes of, of uh, recording. Uh, Amy has shared with us that we're into our summer program, and, uh, and so we are. And, and Neil shared with us on Wednesday night uh, a verse from Romans as we enter into the, our summer program, July and August. And Neil shared a verse with us from Romans. He said, we're not to pull back. We're to continue to press on into the good things that God has for us, his good and pleasing and perfect will for our lives. So while we're relaxing back our program a little, we're still pressing forward in the spirit. And that's, what, that's our prayer over the summer, that we would continue even more maybe to press in uh, to the, the spirit. And so over July and August, we haven't done, we have no major theme that overarches that. We just said we'll, we'll just preach out of overflow and uh, just preach out of where we're at. And, and that's uh, what we want to do. We want to continue as a family on mission. And uh, I was thinking about this the last time I listened to Neil preach. Uh, I wasn't here, but I listened, caught up with him on SoundCloud. And um, he talks a lot about this family on mission. And you know, one of the things that as I thought over that, I thought about it, you know, maybe for you, family on mission, family, this word family, hasn't got a very positive spin on it. Just think about that for a minute. But one thing I've noticed as I read the New Testament is that the New Testament uh, is, is, is the majority of the New Testament is to do with how we live in the kingdom of God. And uh, when Paul writes it, he's writing um, to prepare us as this wonderful bride. Uh, Revelation tells us that that at the end there will be a great uniting with Christ and the bride, the church. And that, that bride, that body, um, is us living together. You know, it's not bride singular. It's not one person. But it's a collective body of people who are going to represent his bride. And that, that can be said, the family or the church on mission. As I've said um, family doesn't always have a positive spin. Maybe your experience is that uh, you've been disappointed with family. Maybe you've been let down by family. Maybe you've been hurt by family. And uh, maybe you've even found yourself, really felt this as I wrote this down on Friday night, maybe you even feel yourself lonely within family. Let me say right at the outset, that is not God's design. God's design. I felt this a couple of weeks ago as, 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 as we worshipped together. I felt there was people that were standing on the outside. I've had this before, a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago. People standing on the outside. And they're, and they're, being, called, they're being welcomed in to the family of God. And because of past hurts or past disappointments or past uh, misunderstandings, Family has dis, seemed to disown you in some way. And so you do not want to venture into that again. You do not want to press into that, to giving your life to a family or to a church and a family on missions. Well, our, our prayer is, as a leadership, is that that would not be the case, as I've said earlier. You know, God's purposes 
if you read the New Testament, God's purposes is fulfilled through ordinary people like you and me. God chooses ordinary people. And oftentimes, he actually goes a wee bit further. He actually picks the misfits. He actually picks the people that uh, no one else would, would, uh, would pick. And as you read this book, you'll see that. If you study this book, and we'll, we'll talk about a misfit in a wee minute or two, a wee minute. We'll talk about a misfit, how God used a misfit. We're created in God's image. Genesis chapter 1 tells us. Each one is created in God's image. And I heard this lovely statement on Friday when I was way down in the south of Ireland. Um, God doesn't make junk. And he doesn't junk what he makes. What he makes, he doesn't throw on a scrap heap and say, you know what, I think I'll go for a better version of that. He doesn't push that one aside and say, I'll go for a better one. It's great to have Ryan and Baz and Ryan, two Ryans and one Baz, with us last weekend. They talked about the courtroom and the living room. They talked about this idea. Uh, They touched on the orphan spirit, or maybe the older brother spirit as well. How we legally come at things, or do we live in the living room with our father? Do we realize that God is our father? Abba Father, which is translated into Papa Father. We kind of lost that word, haven't we? Papa. Papa. Papa Father. We're called to live in family. Community, loving, caring, spurring one another on, as Hebrew 10 tells us, into good works and good acts of service. But you know, the first word, the first time the word orphan is mentioned in the Bible is in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Exodus. And people were being brought out of slavery. We're just after singing that song, he brings us out to bring us in. That's the picture of the children of Israel. God was bringing them out of slavery to bring them into the promised land. And what they did was in the middle of all that, they got stuck in the wilderness for 40 years because they would not obey God's voice and move into the promised land. They kept doubting God. They kept uh, going their own way. They kept doing their own thing. Uh, But in this, God speaks to, uh, in Exodus, he speaks to Moses and the leaders, and he says, please take care of the orphans. In this mass of, of people, and they're journeying along, they're coming out of captivity, and they're going into the promised land, God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, See those people who are lonely? Do you see those people who are isolated? Do you see those people who are probably rejected or do not feel part of the, of the bunch? Please put your arm around them. Take care of them and help them to reach. And that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to live in community and to usher those who are lonely, those who are who are. Um, just getting it hard in any way. Those who, not orphans as in a physical sense, but yes, we're called to, re- to take care of those, but orphans within a spiritual sense. Those who feel isolated and lonely. We're called to, we heard about it a couple of weeks ago, make someone a cup of tea in the Russian church. 
just make someone a cup of tea and make sure they're not on their own. My backdrop here is you win, we all win, you lose, we all lose. And that's this idea of community. We are called to live in community. And when one of us win, the Bible's clear on this, when one of us win, we all win. And when one of us lose, we'll all lose. And we'll get into that a wee bit, uh, a wee bit down the line. Recently, I have, uh, because I knew I was coming to speak uh, or speak here this morning, not just coming, but being part of, of us together, I, I thought about this a couple of weeks ago, and I felt God impressing upon my heart something that I, the first time I ever spoke, uh, which is uh, some odd 20 years ago, I felt God putting on my heart to, to pull out those notes and, and have a look over them. And so it caused me to go into my study and go through folders and try and find where I had these notes. Uh, I never got to find them, but in the midst of that process, what I did find was I found a file. And in that file, it dates back from 2000 and... Uh, let me get my dates right. Uh, I think it's 2000... I have to count my age here. 2000, 2005 to 2007, approximately. Maybe 2004 to 2007. And in that, I, I uh, have uh, recorded words that were spoken over my life. Now, uh, that was back when I was young and full of charisma, and, and you're really hungering for God. And, and so people would have spoke over my life. And, and I know for some of you hearing some stories this week, so I'm not the only one who's been reading over words of prophecy. I'm not the only one that has been reading over words that God has spoken over their lives. But it's amazing. It's amazing someone actually took the time to write those out and send them to me. And so there's 10 or 11 that happened over that time, which I had completely forgot about. I think we forget about more than we remember, don't we? We forget about some of the good things that happen in our lives. And, and, uh, and so uh, I read through them again. I was really encouraged by them. But one thing that was, was common to them all is this word kingdom. Kingdom. You're called to the kingdom. You're called to... To, to release the kingdom. You're called to share the kingdom. You're called to partake in the kingdom. You're called to be involved in the kingdom. And uh, Neil and David, and maybe some other views, I, because I suppose I spend so much time with these, uh, Ronnie as well, these guys are great at, at, at journaling and writing stuff out. And it's a great way to flick back and, and remember what God is saying because as I say, we easily forget. Most of you will forget what I've spoken on today by the time you get your lunch and you, uh, they reckon that you'll probably retain about 3 or 5% of this message. But as I said, the kingdom is a big word. And I shared with you a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago how that the big thing when you became a Christian was that you had to have a verse. You had to have a verse that God spoke to you right away with. And the first verse that God gave me at that time was uh, Matthew 6, verse, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And I have to say that it's only in recent years, maybe I'm going to make myself really sound stupid here, but it's only in recent years that I've actually 
come to understand that we are called to be part of the kingdom. We're not just saved. We don't just have that wee certificate up on our wall or that Bible with a date when we give our lives to the Lord, but we're called to be part of the kingdom. And probably in the last couple of years, I've understood more the kingdom is something that God wants to impress upon our hearts. We're saved into the kingdom. We're saved to be part of the kingdom. And and what I've understood is pretty simple in the last couple of years is one, for a kingdom there needs to be a king. And his name's Jesus. And two, that the kingdom is not just designed for one person. The kingdom is designed for a wide range of people. It's not just designed for one age of people, or that would be ageism. It's designed for a wide range of ages. It's not designed just for one specific educational type. Although people who have gifts and talents normally congregate with the same type of people. But it's not just for one uh, specific education of people. It's not even designed for one tribe. That's a new buzzword within, within Christendom and the modern church today is, is tribe. It's not designed for one tribe. There's many different tribes. It's not just designed for one ethnic group or people or race. And it's kind of, as I thought over those things, it's kind of like what we have here. I'm just stating the obvious, am I? It's kind of like what we have here. And uh, I kind of push that a wee bit further and say it's kind of like what we'd like to open up to people around us. Ryan was sharing with us last week that they've planted a new church in a shed. And the unique thing about this shed is this shed has no walls. It's open-sided. Imagine if we were a church that was open-sided and was just welcoming people in from all different ethnics, from all different ages, from all different classes, from all different educations and status in life. Imagine if that's where we could get to. Could you dream that far with me? Could you? Could you dream that far? Could you think of us popping up the sides? I know it's only a building where we're at but throwing up the sides, throwing up this side and throwing up that side, even throw up that side and let people come, let people come and share what we have. Now, I'm going to get a wee bit emotional because it's the thing to do in the last couple of weeks, seemingly if you're on the stage. But um, we are seriously proud. I hope you hear this in the right sense, in the We are seriously proud of the people that we lead. We are seriously proud of all your uniqueness. We are seriously proud of of how you respond and obey when God puts something on your heart. We're seriously proud of how you step out in faith and live and move when he calls you to do that. It's quite an honor it's quite an honor to, to, to lead a bunch like this. And when we hear stories back and we, we chat over stories of what's happening in each one's life, you know, there's something jumps within our hearts. It's nearly like our hearts burst with joy. And, uh, and Paul writes about that. 
he writes about that in the Philippians church and I'm going to end our time later on with that I'm not going to be a huge length of time but he writes about this in Philippians chapter 2 he talks about the joy that's within his heart when he hears back of what the Philippian church is doing but before we do that I want to to just go where I am uh, and go into the book of Joshua and if you've got your Bible please uh, open it there and let's just um, go off piste and see what uh, does anybody know what that term means off piste so I like skiing I, I haven't skied in a wee while because my wife doesn't like skiing and um, but uh, I like to go to we've gone to Andorra a couple of times and it's nice and sunny and so Joanne can sit out and enjoy uh, just the sun and she doesn't have to put on the skis and she can get a nice tan uh, obviously with her ski suit on but it's a tan on her face um, and, and relax but a couple of years ago we decided to go to Scotland to ski and uh, the weather was appalling it was terrible um, uh, but it was really good snow fantastic snow and so while Joanne didn't like the trip all that much maybe a bit strong to say here of it but uh, while she didn't like it I loved it because in Scotland you ski a little they they have a wee bit of the track uh, measured out for you lined out but then you can go off piste you just go wherever you want to go and while that is really exciting it's quite nerve-wracking because you don't know where you're going to end up and that's what it means to go off piste and that's what I really feel a wee bit about where we're going today because uh, for me personally this is where I'm at I'm in the book of Joshua and uh, and the story starts off in the book of Joshua if you're there um, Joshua chapter 1 this is the young man who's going to lead the the children of Israel into the promised land he um, and it says that after the death of Moses the servant of the Lord the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, your servant is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the river. Moses is dead. Neil brought this out the other day. We were down in Castle Daly at a leader's uh, a couple of days. And Neil brought this out, this point out. Moses was the great leader. And he brought the people right to the edge of the River Jordan. But God said to him, you know, because you have died of me, you will not lead the people into the promised land. It was, it's a very sad part of the story. And so jo Moses just dies at that point. But God says, now Joshua, you have spent 40 years under the leadership of this man. You are the one that's going to lead them into the promised land. And so for something new to be birthed, listen to me, for something new to be birthed, something old had to die. And I was, as I wrote that down to, uh, last night, I think it was, I just thought of that. Some of us are waiting for something new, for what God, the, you have a sense, you have an expectancy that God wants something new in your life. That he has something ready for you to do. And maybe, maybe for you, you need to put the old thing to death first. Maybe you need to say, you know what? That's done. 
I'm not going to drag that along with me. Today's a new day. And so we hear that this guy, Joshua, uh, has spent 40 years with Moses. And I'm going to stop at that point too also. Because what if you're, if you're in a place where that's where God wants you to be? What if God wants you to be in that place of just being an understudy to Moses? What if God wants to teach you some new things? What if God wants to teach you how to, to be able to lead such a great nation? But he's saying, before that, I need you to spend a wee while with, with, with a leader. And, and so don't despise that. If that's where you're at today, please push into that. Push in and learn all you can. Because when the day is right, God will say, here's your time. And so um, uh, God calls uh, Joshua and he says to him this, I'm going to give you everywhere you place your foot. When you cross that river, I'm going to give you every piece of land that you uh, cross your foot, that, that um, crosses your foot. I wonder just in the moment of, of God saying to Joshua, Joshua, you're going to lead this great nation, which is maybe two or three million people. Nobody has an exact figure on that. Did he feel a wee bit about like an orphan? But he felt a wee bit like, well, this is a bit too much, God. How on earth would I ever lead these people? Maybe just for a split second, he got that thought struck in his mind. But God quickly comes in and says, I will give you everywhere you set your foot. No one will be able to stand against you uh, in the days of your life. And as I was with Moses, I will be with you also. Some of us need to write that down on the inside of our arms. As I was with Moses, I will be with you also. I don't think God's words changed. He still says, I will be with you also. And what, what God does now, he, he says something to Moses, and he says it three times in the space of a couple of verses. He says this, he says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. You know, if you're going to do what God has called you to do, if you're going to put to death the old thing and step out into the new thing that God has for you, there's two things you're going to need. You're going to need strength, and you're going to need you're going to need to be courageous. And the other thing is, you know, when we start off something for God, you know, when we we step out in faith, you know, we're we're full of zeal, we're full of let's do this. Well, I find after a wee bit of time, that zeal kind of wears off a wee bit, doesn't it? Our courage maybe drops a bit. Our strength maybe drops a wee bit. And so he, he gets clear, clear instruction. He says, um, be strong and courageous. He says, the first way to fuel that is meditate. Uh, meditate. No, sorry. Remember the promise. So the first way to re-strengthen yourself, to, to re-fuel yourself in this, is uh, remember God's promise. Write it down. I've been saying this to people all week. If God speaks, if you have a word, write it down. Just write it down. File it away. It might not be for today, but you maybe need it again some other day. Write it down. Be strong. If, God, if you've had an event that's happened to you over the week where you feel God's really spoken to your spirit, 
write it down. Because you're, I, I'd say you're no different to me. You'll forget. I forget. Very quickly. When a trial comes or when courage dips, when faith seems to give way, we need to have those things that are written down, those promises of God. The second time when he says to, to him, be strong and courageous, he says, here's another way to be strong and courageous. Meditate on God's word. Meditate on who he is. He is our father. He is our Abba. He wants us to live by faith. And then the third thing he says to him, he says, um, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Um, do, not be dis- uh, do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you. Remember, if you don't remember the promise, you don't remember to meditate, remember this. He is with you. He is with you. If everything else is stripped away, remember he is with you. And his desire is good. His plans for you are good. He wants to give you, make you prosper and give you a hope. And so uh, Joshua then says, okay, the Lord's with me. And the, Lord's, the Lord wants us to cross this river and go into the promised land. And, uh, and so um, uh, what they do is they, they go into the promised land. Uh, God gives them a strategy for crossing the River Jordan. The Ark of the Covenant goes first, and all the people follow through. And, uh, and the nation, it must have been quite a scene. This river parts. This, the other thing about this river parting is we read that the Jordan was in full flood at this time. I've often found when God asks us to step out in faith, it's not usually at the most convenient time. It's not. It's never usually at the most convenient time. Could God not have waited for the Jordan to be to be near 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 down so it's only up to their ankles or the waters to be really low? But he didn't. He 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 called them to cross the Jordan when the Jordan was in full flood. And so the the priests went ahead and the waters stopped. We read far back up the the uh, river and uh, the people crossed across. And um, Lucas shared with us, was it from this passage you'd shared a couple of weeks ago about how um, the, the, the leaders of the 12 tribes were to go back into the riverbed and pick up 12 stones and carry them out and they were to build an altar. And that altar was to, be, was to remind them of what the Lord had done. Now, do you not think if you had walked through a river you would have remembered. But God knows us. See, God knows that we'll forget. And that's why he told the tribes, go into the bed, into the middle of the river, pick up 12 stones and bring them out. And so they crossed into the promised land. And here they are in the promised land. And Joshua is their leader. Uh, Now, there's a great city in the promised land called Jericho. And most of us know that story because we've learned it as kids. The walls of Jericho fell. There's probably songs about it. I don't remember them, like the walls come tumbling down or something like that. But uh, Joshua knew that this was an important city. And God spoke to him and said, you need to take this city. And so God gives Joshua a strategy and says to Joshua, Joshua, after 
two weeks of being in the promised land, you need to go up to Jericho and you need to take this city. And again, uh, God gives uh, this plan, this strategy of how to do it. But Joshua sends two spies. Isn't it amazing that Joshua only sent two spies? When his leader was scouting out the land, Moses, he sent 12 spies. And only two came back with a good report. The two that came back was Joshua and Caleb. And this is Joshua. But Joshua doesn't waste time on that. He just sends two. And they come back with this report that, that men's hearts are sinking because they know. But isn't it amazing that when Joshua sends the spies, where does he send them to? Whose house does he send them to? A misfit. A misfit in society. He doesn't send them to the government. He doesn't send them to the palace. He doesn't send them to meet the local councillor. He doesn't send them to meet church leaders within Jericho. He sends them to the house of a prostitute, Rahab. And in that, there's a beautiful story in itself. But again, it affirms to me that God uses misfits. He uses people um, most likely to be used. And uh, so they have their time with Rahab. In, in Matthew chapter 1, when we're reading through the lineage of, of Jesus, whose name's in there? Rahab, the prostitute, who was the father of Boaz. So we, we, we learn from this that her life was changed. Her, her, she obviously got married and her life was changed. And, uh, and so she was rescued in the midst of all this. And so uh, the spies come back and say, look, we can take the land. People are in fear of us. We can do this. And so Joshua says in chapter 3, he says, uh, he says to the people, consecrate yourselves. Now, I think this is important. I think this is important. As we're going into battle, as we're going to take the land that God has called us to take, he says, consecrate yourselves. He gives that commandment to the people. Tomorrow we will do uh, amazing things. Oh, that's actually back uh, to do with the crossing of the Jordan. He says, cross, uh, consecrate yourselves. When it's time for, them, for him to take the, the city of, um, of, of Jericho, um, he says, bring the people forward and let's get all consecrated together. So there's an individual part of preparing yourself for battle, but there's a corporate part of it as well. And so um, when they go up to take Jericho, there's a warning. And this warning comes uh, in, in, in chapter 6, verse 18. Chapter 6, verse 18. It says this, but keep away from the devoted things that you may not bring destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. So when they were to go in and take the city of Jericho, the walls fell. And what they were to go in was to go in and wipe out the people and the, the spoils or the produce or whatever it is that's in there, there to bring that back, and that was to be dedicated to the Lord. And, um, and so they do that, and there's a great battle. And uh, 
And we read that at the end of that chapter, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the earth. So they had a great battle at the end of chapter 6. But chapter 7, things turn a wee bit. So they do. And Dave Wiley was here a couple of weeks ago leading our our midweek uh, bonfire prayer uh, gathering on uh, one Wednesday night. And he mentioned this, and Neil mentioned it uh, a couple of weeks ago when he was when he was speaking, and, and someone else has mentioned it to me also. In, in chapter 7, we read that not all the people did what God had commanded them to do. Achan was part of one of the tribes. And what he did was he stole some of the goods and hid them in his tent. And, uh, and so uh, that opened the doorway to things changing for the children of Israel. One man's wee sin, one man's disobedience within this group of people changed uh, the story. Achan, the son of somebody, the son of somebody, the son of somebody. So he's not even an important name in the midst of all this. He's just a somebody within this group. And so what we read is that the, they've conquered the, the, the city of Jericho, and now there is a small, another city that they need to go and wipe out. And it's called Ai. Is that how we pronounce it? Ai? And Ai was much smaller than Jericho. And so what they did, what Joshua did was he, he sent the spies, and the spies came back and said, we can take this land. We don't need to send 40,000 troops. 3,000 will do. We'll wipe it out. And so the, the army goes up to take out this, this town or this city. And for the first time, they are defeated. They are defeated. They are wiped out. They are disgraced. The children of Israel who were promised so much, who had the promises of God, who had who people's hearts melted when they heard about it, when they went to take this city, uh, they were wiped out. And, uh, and so they come back, the report comes back to Joshua. And Joshua strips off his clothes and, and goes into a state of mourning. And the priests go into a state of mourning with Joshua. And basically Joshua says, he, in verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, he tore his clothes and fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till that evening. And Joshua said, Ah, oh, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring us, why did you ever bring us across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Joshua just wasn't even disappointed that he had won the battle. He had forgot, you see the way you forget very easily? He had forgot about the walls of Jericho. He had forgot about the Jordan splitting open. And he actually pined back to the days, back into uh, before the crossing of the sea. And uh, God is very gracious. God just allows him to have his little lament. And then God says to him, What are you doing here? What are you doing, Joshua? Stand up. What are you doing with your face down? 
I think that's just an amazing picture of, of humanity. We, we get ourselves so down, we get ourselves so caught up in something, we just forget. And we, get, we forget about the goodness of God, we forget about the power of God, the strength of God, we forget about the promises of God, we forget about the word of God. We even forget that God has a plan and a purpose for each one of our lives. Stand up, he says. Israel has sinned. Joshua knew nothing about this. And so God revealed to him that there was sin in the house. And this is why uh, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. Uh, they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen them. They have lied and put them in their own possessions. And this is why Israel can't stand against their enemies. They, they turn their backs and run because they have, made, they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever is among you that is devoted, uh, that was devoted. And so God says you need to deal with this sin. You need to deal with this issue because the sin in this one life, in this one family, has brought down the whole nation of Israel. And then God says to them in chapter, says to Joshua in, in verse 13, he says, go and consecrate the people. So this is a move from consecrating yourselves to consecrating the people. You see the collectiveness? You see the progression? We're, we're, we are saved individually, but we, are, we do not continue individually. Yes, there is a responsibility on each one of us to walk right before the Lord. But when you are saved, you are saved into a community, a family, a body, whatever definition you want to put on that. And so that's why I still go back to saying this here. Within that body, when you win, when there's a victory in your life, there's a victory for us all. But there's the warning side to that, that when you lose, we all feel the effects of that. When you let God down, when you're disobedient to God, um, we all. Now, I'm conscious of time, so I want to land this in in Philippians 2. So you can see that, that idea of that we're, we're individually and then, and then corporately uh, brought together. And so it was the sin of that one man. But turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And if nothing else, just be a bit romantic with me because it's the first thing I ever preached and, uh, and so uh, let's just look at what these words say I talked about this idea of joy joy being complete and, um, and so in Philippians chapter 2 verse 2 Paul writes this he says then make my joy complete be by being like minded have the same love be one in the spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to, the, to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on to say, let this attitude be in you that is in Christ. You know, we all can start out being strong and courageous. When Paul was writing this, the big theme of the book of Col Colossians is that 
for you to complete all that God has for you, you need joy. So many times Paul uses the word joy in this book, in the book, when he's writing to the church at Philippi, when he's writing to the church at Rich Hill, or when he's writing to the church at whatever. He's saying you can start out with strength and courage, but if you're going to complete everything that God has purposed in your life, you need joy. And you know how joy is found. Joy is found in serving others. Joy is found in being mindful of others. Joy is found when we put others' interests before ourselves. We are, we are saved into a family. If we want to take it back into Joshua's terms, we're saved into an army. In an army, there's no spectators. There's no audience in an, or, an army. There's no uh, standing on the sidelines. When you enter an army, you enter to participate. I really want to land this well. I really want to land it the best I can. I wrote this line down. What you do in your ordinary life and what, what you do in your everyday ordinary will affect the community you live in, the family you live in, and the church you're part of. Don't, don't, don't think it won't. And if it doesn't, and I mean that both good and bad. I think of some of the stories that Bridget, I don't want to highlight Bridget, but I'm just thinking of some of the stories that, that's sometimes outside the box for us. And some of the victories that you have spills back in here. And then we get to celebrate with that. We get to be part of that. And so that's an act of participation. And that's, that's the plus side. Some of the stories of, of seeing people's lives transformed. Some of the stories of hearing people giving their life to Jesus. Or some of the stories of just serving people around us. And, and seeing people experience the love of God for the first time. Are real stories of victory that we all want to celebrate and share in. But, but there is the other side there is the side of responsibility when we fail to be obedient when we fail first of all to participate within a family and within a community that family and community are lacking but when we fail to be obedient within that and think of ourselves not like what paul writes in philippians putting others first putting the needs of others first we we bring that family down as i was leaving my study this morning, just in finishing off some notes, I picked up this book, and the title of this book is um, it's by Francis Schaeffer. I thought I'd put that in because Neil would be impressed that I read a Francis Schaeffer book. But it's a very small book, and it talks about the marks of a true Christian. I want to suggest this morning that these words in Philippians are the marks of a true Christian. The marks of a true Christian has the heart and the spirit that if I win in my everyday ordinary, then I bring that win to the body of people who I worship with. That's, but the marks of an orphan or a person who lives or decides to live in isolation says it doesn't matter what I do. It's not really going to affect people around us. 
Joshua, as he finishes, and I'm really finishing with this one, Joshua, as he finishes his life, he makes his farewell speech in, in, um, in, in Joshua uh, 26, verse 8. And in his farewell speech, he, he pulls words from Leviticus. I'm sounding very smart here, am I, Billy? But he pulls words from Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 26, verse 8. In his farewell speech, he says this. Let me, let me just read it because I think it's worth reading. Five of you can chase a hundred, but a hundred of you will be able to stand against ten thousand. So five of you working together will be able to to affect a hundred people. You see the unity in that? You see the working together? But he says, you know what, if there was if there was a thousand of you, or if there was a hundred, only a hundred of you working together, you actually can take on 10,000. I've done the math on that. So it's 20 times if you go five to a hundred. But if you go between a uh, hundred and 10,000, that's a hundred times. And I can't help but think of, of the, the fruit of our lives. You know that part where it says about 30, 60, or 100-fold? You want a 100-fold return for what you do. Then maybe this is part of the ingredient you need, is to be together, is to be in partnership, is to, is to uh, as Paul would say, making his joy complete, preferring one another, loving one another, caring for one another, being united, not, not uh, as a spectator, please hear me now, but as a participator, you have a part to play. Let me pray, and then the team's going to come and sing the song. Father, thank you that your word ever rings through.